Welcome to the Lobby Podcast on Center Maryland. We are here with a writer, a producer, a showrunner for networks like uh, Fox, Sony, FX. He's a classically trained musician from Yale, where he was a student athlete, and Juilliard, where I don't think they have a football team, but he was certainly learning his opera there. He is uh, the co-creator of TNT's Murder in the First. And most importantly to our friends here in the lobby, he was on the very first campaign, really, of a city councilman and a mayor named Tim Kaine, who is now uh, a beaming star in the Democratic Party in the U.S. Senate. His name is Eric Lodel. Eric, welcome to the Lobby Pod. Thank you, Damien. I'm excited to be here and uh, always happy to see you, my friend. I would say he's also a skier, but this year's weather in the Rockies is is not going to let There's him no prove it. No. <laughs> Let's. Uh, uh, the reason I, you know, the reason I wanted to get together and talk is because um, you and I kind of share something in that we followed one political life from its near inception as a city council person, uh, yours in Richmond and mine in Baltimore, uh, all the way to, you know, presidential uh, campaigns. Uh, uh, yours much more successful than the one I was a part of. But but just being with an elected official for that period of time, I thought was uh, as a friend, as a supporter, as a strategist, somebody who really like help cement Tim Kaine's persona in, in the Washington media. I just wanted to get together with you because I thought it would give a lot of, of our younger listeners who are wondering about all the ins and outs of politics. It gives them a, a different idea about what's possible from being a part of public life and public affairs. So I'm so stoked you're you're here. What's it like to be buddies with Tim Kaine from uh, from the time he was uh, really city councilman or, or mayor of Richmond, right? It's a uh, it's been an amazing journey. I call him Tim, which is inappropriate. I should say Senator Kane, et cetera. But uh, I met him when he was. I think the total number of votes he had ever achieved before our campaign was around a thousand in a city council race in his neighborhood, maybe even less than that. And uh, and then mayor in Richmond is elected amongst the city council persons, all of whom uh, at the time, other than Tim, were African-American because it's a predominantly African-American city. And Tim was officially the first white mayor of Richmond since Reconstruction wow. and uh, the capital of the Confederacy. And he was elected by a black city council to be so. So when I met Tim, I was, I had no idea who he was. Uh, I had finished Juilliard, uh, had gotten a contract at the New York City Opera to sing straight out of my master's degree at Juilliard, and which was considered a pretty cool thing. I think I was the only person that got a contract right out of my class. But at the same time, I was having real apprehension about pursuing that career because, to my mind, it wasn't enough brain work. Uh, it, oh, yeah. uh, it's an athletic endeavor, and to be successful, 
you ultimately sing the same role a thousand times in various opera houses and you're on the road all the time and you end up marrying your accompanist if you're lucky and uh it just didn't feel like something that would get me out of the bed every morning and excited so I wanted to move into writing and and sort of you know the behind the camera aspects of life and thinking and uh intellectual pursuits and you know to get make a living off of my brain quite frankly that's I remember having that conversation with uh my brother-in-law Jeff Himmelman who's a writer as well uh anyway I uh came down to Virginia because I wanted to write I didn't know how to get to Hollywood I had no connections in Hollywood and so I, uh, growing up in McLean, Virginia, in a family that was politically active, uh, you know, if, if you grow up in the D.C. area and you want to be a writer, you go work on the campaign, basically. And so I decided to do that. It was 2001. Mark Warner was running for governor. And Mark had this giant war chest. And I think when I started this pursuit in January of 2001, uh and i went ironically and i had an interview with mike henry who is ah, a great yeah. friend of mine and now has been tim's chief of staff for gosh long time maybe a decade uh and their relationship is unimpeachable and uh and, my, and you know mike's been i've known mike since this moment because he was the guy who interviewed me for the Warner campaign. So I walk in. And so first of all, it's January 2001. And at the time... So Warner campaign, you're saying you interviewed... I started now. there, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I started with Warner. So I walk in a Warner campaign and it's January pre-election. And this is back in the olden days where the money wasn't as flush. He had already had like 100 staffers <laughs> in like January, you know? Before the money days. Before the money days, okay? He had all that cell phone money. And he had like this gigantic office in Alexandria. And I had to go through like levels of security just to get inside. And this is January of 2001. And so anyway, I got led to Mike Henry's office and he was field director at the time. And I still give him shit about this. So I don't mind saying it publicly because we've talked about it many times, but it was the most awkward interview I think I've ever had. He would just shoot you these like questions like, name the last five nonfiction books you've read. <laughs> you know and you're yeah. just sitting there like wait, i thought we we're gonna have i thought we we're gonna have a conversation wait let me tick those off okay <laughs> you know <laughs> and you're just like going to your greatest hits because like you hadn't actually pieced that together and well let's see i got stuck on the you know anyway omnivore's dilemma for a while <laughs> <laughs> but mike yeah so mike gave me this weird interview so i just left that whole meeting being like no no way. And I'm an opera singer, you know, with a Yale degree in economics, but uh, I didn't have any sort of background to uh, make me interesting other than I guess I went to Yale and stuff like that. But uh, so then I was like, well, screw this, but I still wanted to work. And so I looked at the lieutenant governor's race. And, you know, one of the strangest things about Virginia is that lieutenant governor runs completely separately for, and attorney general as well. They don't run on a unified ticket. Right. And uh, at that time, Mark was very, Senator Warner was very uh, uh, much the wallflower when it came to the down ticket races. He did not want to get involved because there were a lot of like very established Democrats running against each other in the primary. 
and he wanted to be everybody's friend. So he kind of laid back. It wasn't like he was actively, uh, you know, supporting one or the other, but he just laid back, which I understand. And at the time when I, so anyway, so I went to, I decided to go to a Lieutenant Governor's debate in Northern Virginia, which is one of the worst pieces of entertainment you could ever imagine. And uh, the, <laughs> at, that, that, at this, at, it was at a Rotary Club in McLean, Virginia. And there was literally, it was me, two elderly ladies and seven reporters for right. various like, you know, like local uh, newspapers, which we used to have back in the day, 2001. Um, anyway, so I sat there and it was Alan Diamondstein, who was this very successful, he was the head of the Senate, I think, House or I don't remember if he was House or Senate, but I think he was the head of the Senate and, in Virginia, had been there forever, uh, was uh, famous for bringing trash, New York City trash to Virginia. Uh, that was his claim to fame. He was a a politician out of Norfolk, Newport News, somewhere down there. But he was like the establishment. He was the he was a Democrat boss. Right. And but, you know, he was kind of running for glory at that point in time. He was in his late 60s, I think, maybe early 70s. And there was kind of a assumption that Mark would favor him simply for the politics of it, if anything. And he had he was pulling at 35 something percent when I started. So Alan Diamondstein was the front runner, essentially. And in second place behind him was Gerald Jones, who was also, uh, he was a house member from the Virginia Beach Tidewater area and kind of a disciple of Bobby Scott, who of course is perhaps the most legendary Virginia congressman uh, of the moment. Uh, Jim Moran used to be and others have been, but uh, uh, anyway. Uh, so Gerald came from Tidewater. He was a very talented politician, had a lot of ability, charisma, uh, uh, and, you know, good guy, really good guy, but didn't, hadn't developed much of a platform. It was mostly kind of a personality type of race. And then there was this guy with two or three points standing next to them, the mayor of Richmond, Tim Kaine. And what's that you know, mean in Virginia politics when, when Virginia politics and somebody says mayor of Richmond, like to is that like that's like a slander? It's like slander. I mean, that's not that big of a gig, eh? No, they don't like the mayor of Richmond. The, the Richmond <laughs> is not viewed as a you know, uh, prized jewel in the crown of Virginia, it's basically viewed as a mess. And uh, and so the idea of any politician from Richmond, most of Virginia is going to think corrupt, you know, messy, uh, et cetera, because that's been Re Richmond's legacy, you know, over the years. And I mean, not truly in my eyes, not at all. I think Richmond's an actually spectacular, diverse and exciting town with a lot of baggage that it has to deal with, given the fact that it was the capital of the Confederacy. For sure. You know, people forget, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, when Tim Kaine was governor, he was, I mean, when Doug Wilder was governor, you know, the first black governor in American history, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was sleeping in the Capitol, you know, the, the mansion, the governor's mansion is essentially the same as it was for oh, wow. uh, the Confederacy. So, 
Anyway, it's a it's a powerful place to do politics. And, so you see and, this uh, long shot guy. So I see this guy, and I was like, that's the only guy making any sense, really. I mean, I have no disrespect to Mr. Diamondstein or Gerald Jones, but uh, it was just night and day in terms of brain, intellect, you know, ideas, uh, solutions, experience. Having been on the street in Richmond and at the time, he had implemented a law called Project Exile, which was a, oh, one yeah. of the few gun laws in American history that received support from basically the entire uh, continuum of left to right. Uh, because, uh, you know, it was sort of a loophole law, but essentially meant that if you were convicted for multiple gun crimes, uh, they wouldn't, you know, you would go through your normal process, but they wouldn't imprison you nearby. Uh, your family, they would exile you to Idaho or something like that, which to me still sounds a little draconian, but uh, apparently it was effective in uh, discouraging gun crimes and crime rates fell and so forth and so on. So it was, you know, kind of a classic Tim Kaine uh, uh, piece of legislation in the sense that he just threaded this needle and actually got sort of both sides to agree on something, which of course we know is rare. So I saw him, I fell in love. I went up to him afterwards and I was like, Hey man, I'm an opera singer from New York. Uh, do you need any help? And, uh, he was like, well, okay. And I, we talked a little bit more than that, but, uh, I think I was employee number four, something like that. Lisa McMurray was running the campaign. She, she had no interest in me effort because Tim, so I, I, I flirted with Tim. And Tim says, call so-and-so. And he was, again, you know, pulling into single digits for lieutenant governor in a red state at the time. You know, this is still George Allen's and Jim Gilmore's Virginia. Right. And uh, and so I thought, you know, I just worked the primary for like a principled guy and get the heck out of here and then try to figure out my way to Hollywood and so forth. And uh, so I end up working on the campaign. Lisa McMurray, fantastic uh, manager at the time. I think he, she had just come off of, uh, I think a John Edwards race or something like that. Right. And, uh, Jeff Geiger, who's sort of been my best friend over the years from that campaign. He was the field director. I started as deputy field director and, uh, we didn't have a communications department. We didn't have, you know, Tim felt confident that he could communicate well, this is uh, a great story about how you went from being a field director to really being a communications person. Uh, yeah. If it doesn't get you in, with, in any trouble with the law, I'd love to no, no. explain. No, no. Yeah, well, yeah, the story, I There's mean. a couple okay, stories. So, well, I just, the greatest thing that Tim provided for me as a young person and a young professional was the power to be entrepreneurial the power to think outside of the box. Tim was not a classic politician. He frequently uh, rejected the advice of the consultant class. Uh, we spent days trying to convince him that his position, which is that as a Catholic, he's pro-life anti-death penalty, which by the way, is kind of the only consistent life point of view. I mean, sure. not life, but you know, on that side of the, equation uh i don't understand people who are pro-life when it comes to abortion and pro-death penalty you know that doesn't quite intellectually stack up for me but anyway so he he's that kind of person because he's catholic he's a serious catholic and he goes to a church in in, in richmond every weekend which happens to be an all-black catholic church huh. which is part of why he has such trust and love from the black community is he's just never you know been 
anything but uh they see him every family. Sunday. Yeah. He's there. He's there. And you know, he he has that kind of personality. And I, I've tried to emulate it over the years, and I think I have in many ways, but just you know, just he doesn't walk into any room judging any person. He doesn't say, Oh, they're the rich guys. I need to go pay attention to them, or there's this, or there's that. He 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 walks in very much with uh, a soulful openness and he treats everybody the same, you know, everybody. And so anyway, so I start working for him. Uh, and as you were talking about, so I started in a field and they would give me these stupid jobs. Like I, you know, I'm 20 something early twenties, I guess, 2001 born in 76. So uh, 25, 26, somewhere in there. And uh, had come from graduate school and Wall Street. And I started a record label. I'd done some other things before I did this. And suddenly I'm assigned with uh, our only asset in terms of marketing and uh, PR, which was we had purchased 3,500 yard signs. And uh, these yard signs, which were because he was Irish and, and proud of it, they were green and gold there was no red white or blue anywhere near <laughs> the yard sign so it sort of felt like we were running you know a green campaign or something i don't know but the point was my job was to take these yard signs and to deliver them to all the various democratic committees around the state you know drive here give them 10 yard signs say hello drive somewhere else do the same thing and that just seems so ridiculous to me because all these people were just going to put them in their own yards and their own sort of left-leaning neighborhoods. And uh, I was like, what's the purpose of that? Other than to, if you're of... lucky, right. And they could be in the, they could be in the central committee closet for the next five years. Right. If you're lucky, they get out. Right. Right. I was just like, this is dumb. And this is our main asset. We just like spent, we, our bank account was like 20 grand and we just spent like, you know, 12 of it on these yard signs or something. You know, you got to pay union prices, of course. And so <laughs> we got these yard signs and I was like, what the hell? This is the dumbest idea. You know, just to hand them out to these committees. And meanwhile, Tim had zero name recognition. Uh, that was our biggest problem was name recognition. So I said, well, shit, if this is the only asset we have, here's what I'm going to do. And I, I learned from my mother and father a long time ago that, you know, when you're being entrepreneurial, generally speaking, the best way to act is not to ask permission and then do something. It's to do something and then seek forgiveness when necessary. Uh, but you don't want to put the other person in a position of uh, having to say no. And this wasn't a bad idea. So I was like, okay, let's research the law. So I had a little team and they were mainly high school kids. I was in my young twenties and these were like the high school sort of kids that you would see at different events and that would show up repeatedly and that were very politically oriented and they would show up. So anyway, so we had this little team of like figure out the laws for Virginia. And then we would just plaster 66 coming into town in DC with 3,000 yard signs. It's a trap. And so just the most heavily. So the morning traffic would just have to literally see every fucking yard sign. Okay. <laughs> to the point where they're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. <laughs> and we researched exactly which medians we could put them on legally and so forth and so right, on. Right. And we just we, we just created this like absolute uh you know yard sign uh you know uh presentation all the way down I-66. Okay. 
And then because we were a little bit scared that somehow we'd get Tim in trouble or, you know, this would become controversial after the day, we'd leave it there for morning and then we'd turn it around for night. And then after the day, we would pick them all up and we had this big, well, it was not big, but it was my, my Ford Explorer, you know, <laughs> truck. And we put them all in the back of there. And then we drive down to, uh, you know, 95 right? or, you know, head towards Williamsburg. And we just put them on different sectors of absolutely the most congested sort of traffic in Virginia <laughs> and day after day. And suddenly people started like talking about this thing, you know, like Tim Kane signs, you know, and then they would magically disappear overnight and just move somewhere else, <laughs> you know, and all these kids were all about it, man. I remember some of those kids very well. Like it was, it was, it if you was could fun. do it good like and be surreptitious at the same yeah, time. No, it was fun, better, man. Right? It was, it was, we were out late at night, just putting up signs and, you know, kind of, you, you know, you feel this edginess to it, but anyway, so it, it started to help. So that got some attention. And then, um, you know, this is 2001, so nobody had the concept, imagine this, of imagine. An, email, a, an email newsletter. Okay, so it was completely old school. So all of campaign expenses were spent on 100% television, mail. Uh, signs. S signs. Field. Staff, yeah. All that stuff. Staff. No digital Right? no digital no digital <laughs> okay and so i had this crazy idea i said hey tim you know there's this uh program called constant contact and uh we go to all these events and we could get their emails and we could sort of start this list of supporters etc so we did that and uh we called it the timo memo nice and that's where suddenly i was able to write on a bi-weekly basis if not more frequently and the staff and tim were able to see my writing a bit and based off of that you know we ended up winning this incredible primary out of the blue against diamondstein and gerald jones and and they didn't make any big stumbles it's just that tim steadily rose the whole time a little and, old school and a little new school there with the technology and the science but you know also a good lesson for our our younger listeners about you know, breaking the rules artfully, uh, yeah. and, and also managing sort of the message every day from day one with the news clips, right? Like sort of the person, I always say the person who's in charge of the clips is instantly, you know, an incredibly relevant person, no matter their right. age. That's Bill's job. Our producer, he produces center Maryland for Marylanders. So he's, he's got the clips. Well, you're, you're, morning, you're so. the brand builder in that regard. And the brand is the thing. You know, I think that's one of the things Tim appreciates most about my small contributions early on is that I was there at the origin of his brand. Uh, and which, he would never which, put it that Which way. in that race means working with reporters at the Washington Post, right? Right. Working with. Well, so, yes. Yeah. So I ended up getting promoted. So we went to primary. I get promoted to become the first communications director. So that's my claim to fame is that I was Tim Kaine's first ever communications <laughs> director. And he would give me shit about it every appearance because he'd walk out and say, like, here's my communications director, Eric, because apparently I don't know how to communicate and you know, <laughs> say shit like that and just kind of put me down. But no, I was in charge of all the speech writing, all the policy, everything else, all the thinking game in that in that silo. And 
became his community, but it was also kind of his body man because it was a small campaign. So I was riding with him in the car every day. I, it was just me and Tim on the road constantly. And uh, sometimes his uh, father-in-law, Linwood Holton, uh, who was the first Republican uh, governor of Virginia after uh, Reconstruction, because it was a Dixocrat, racist Democrat party that was in power for much of uh, the early part you know, of the 20th oh, century. So and the so Republican. Holton was a reformer Republican who ended up voting for Obama, supporting Tim, becoming essentially a Democrat. He calls himself a rhino, but he's not willing to, you know, he wasn't. He, you know, sadly, I think, uh, yeah, he passed away just recently. Uh, but uh, Linwood was an amazing man. He walked his kids. He walked. So Tim's wife, Ann Holton, who was a very successful judge and secretary of education in Virginia, uh, and who he met at Harvard Law School uh, when Anne and her brother brothers, Dwight and uh, Woody, were young, under 10. It was 1971, I believe. And uh, Brown versus Board was ancient. And Virginia was still segregating schools through essentially busing and uh and various ways in which they could kind of loophole their way around the federal uh guidelines and it was linwood holton who walked his two white children from the governor's mansion in richmond across into you know the most economically troubled part of richmond the hood and uh which is where they would have been assigned to go to school under the statewide program. And he walked them to school and it was, I think it was on the cover of time magazine, but anyway, wow. so they come from this incredible family of, of justice and social justice. You know, I mean, they're just some of the best people you'll ever yeah, meet. How would you describe around. his brand as somebody that helped shape it at the outset? How would you talk about Tim Kaine's brand? Cause it seems well, to be, seems to be pretty much the, the same one uh, that y'all started off with. Right. I mean, it's pretty resilient. It's never changed. It's never changed. He, you know, it's essentially his brand is helping other people fundamentally. Yeah. Being of service to others. And legitimately, he has his own beliefs, but he understands the separation between government and belief systems. And so he's anti death penalty. And I know when he was governor, the hardest nights of his life, and I've talked to him about this many times, were when he had to actually approve a death penalty sentence. And of course, we all know Virginia is the second uh, most active state when it comes to death penalty behind Texas. So I think there are 120 or something on average a year. And so he'd have to sit there at night. And it wasn't that he was actively looking for a way to commute or change a sentence or what have you. Uh, he's incredibly faithful to the law. He knows his role, which is as a legislator, to change the law. But never in a million years would he disobey the consensus opinion of people as executed through legislation. So, you know, when he became governor, uh, he had to sign off on executions and he's radically against the death penalty. Uh, 
And, you know, those nights where he would go through the, that paperwork to just, just to make sure that he had done as thorough a job as he possibly, possibly could, if, if the, uh, the person uh, that had been given the sentence uh, by the law was found guilty, et cetera, you know, he would have to sign off on it, but he hated it. You know, he hated it. But so just you're getting back to the brand. But the point is his brand is always just like, this is not your normal dude. That's his brand. His brand <laughs> is like, this is just not your normal guy. And that, you know, gets back to that Washington Post profile that I wrote. I want to help write Peter Whiskey, uh, his first big profile after he won the primary, because nobody paid any attention to him until suddenly he surprisingly won the primary. And so suddenly the Washington Post was calling me as the new communications director and saying, you know, we got to write a, uh, a profile of this guy. We have no idea who he is. And will you start meeting with us, et cetera? So I started having lunch with Peter Wariski from the Washington Post, who uh, uh, has, uh, we used to meet, it was like a Thai restaurant in Fairfax, something like that. And uh, I was this young kid and, and he was relatively young reporter uh for the post at the time and 2001 back when they covered well yeah back when they yeah covered. i think he had just moved out of like uh i don't know he'll get mad at me if i say it wrong but it was almost like sports like local sports or something <laughs> or like it was like yeah. you know the local crime beat or something yeah. you know this was kind of he was starting out his career and uh i was starting out mine and we would meet at this restaurant we would just talk and i would just tell him like i'm talking to you now about tim like this is one of the most legitimately decent persons you'll ever meet you know and the stories about tim are legendary i mean this guy doesn't have a bad bone in his body and i i feel ridiculous saying that because i'm a cynical political uh person who has been around the block and i've run television shows and i've dealt with you know hundreds of employees and everything else so i, I don't have a naivete to me but like tim's just one of the best guys you'll ever meet and he will be there for you in a heartbeat no matter what happens to you, you know, and in any circumstance. And he's, I saw him act this way, even on the campaign. We, we tried to get his cell phone away from him on the campaign. And this is his first campaign for Lieutenant Governor. But so many people, random people would be calling him and asking for favors. And we were just trying to like, hey, man, your phone's too public. Let's change your number, whatever, whatever. And he was just like, nah, <laughs> I'm going to keep it. What makes me, uh, you know, he just seems like he's always in the fight, you know, uh, no matter whether it's, you know, January 7th, uh, January, sorry, I'm getting my dates mixed up, January 6th, or whether it's the the presidential campaign trail with Hillary Clinton. And then what made me, uh, what made me uh, think of you and him again was Maryland uh, just bested Virginia uh, through the GSA and the Biden administration to, to welcome the FBI headquarters. You know, and Tim Kaine said he wasn't done with that. And I was like, this no, guy's he'll, he'll fight for he'll he's fight a serious for Virginia, dude. Man. And uh no, you know, no. he's like our Stanny Hoyer, like he's a he's a dogged fighter and he'll uh, he may he be the utmost gentleman and gentlemanly and honest, but he is a persistent person. So I, I just got a little Oh, nervous. he's incredibly capable. I mean, don't yeah, get me I got wrong. A little you nervous guys know all that. Yeah, no, he yeah, can yeah. fight. He knows how to yeah, fight. Yeah, There's yeah. no doubt. But he fights with principle and with his mind, you know, he doesn't and, and with his loyalty. And you're right. He's a Virginia nationalist. No, nah, maybe that's too strong a term. But <laughs> this guy, this motherfucker 
excuse me. <laughs> but I, I always in my emails to Tim, fuck Harvard, because I went to Yale. So <laughs> and he, he responds nonetheless. But uh, I, you know, this guy, we tried to get him to go on vacation a time or two because he needed like we had to buy this guy suits on the road, you know, like, OK, we're going to go to uh, JCPenney and we're going to select some suits. <laughs> we like I mean, he just he he's so authentic. It's appalling <laughs> he kind of the unpolitician in the sense he's right? he, but 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 he's also this savvy politician like he's yeah. willing he's willing to put up with the bullshit and, and that's what i'd never quite computed about tk was you know this guy has his priorities in the right place he really does and you know he taught me so many lessons he taught me about politics and better than anybody ever has. And I worked for Kerry and Musgrove. I've worked for a bunch of different people when I was early. And, uh, you know, he always said, you know, politicians, there are only two types of politicians because you're going to get all this love and adulation. All these people are going to come up to you and, and your hope, their hopes and their dreams and everything else is going to be, uh, you know, placed upon you. And the, there are two types of politicians. There are ones that actually take that energy in and think it's about them, that they really are the chosen one. He didn't say that far, but I'm elaborating a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah I get it. That they are, that they are the I've ones. I've seen that. <laughs> I've seen that. You know, and they take that, I mean, you know, we could drop names right now. We know who those people <laughs> are. And Democrats and Republicans, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. You know, two Monica Lewinsky exists for a reason, you know, but, uh, but there are others, and this is what's Tim's sort of philosophy that realize that they're just a mirror, you know, a mirror on which, uh, people reflect their hopes and dreams That's right. and view the future in an uplifting way. And that you're you're not really it's not about you. You're not some special person. You're kind of like the holder of the mirror. You're right. you're the servant you're of the people. Right. And you know, and you can't take all of that adulation into your ego uh without risking catastrophe. You know, and I think that's the story of politics over and over and over again, which is really hubris. And Tim's greatest asset is there is no less hubristic man on earth. Uh, there is no more humble, legitimate servant of people than him. And I've been around him for 28 years and I'm a fuck up, man. Don't think I'm some sort of like, you know, holdier You're than Hollywood, type of person. Man. You're Hollywood. I, I work in Hollywood. I deal with crazy shit all the time. And, you know, so talk about I, that. I, talk about how you went from this, uh, you know, ecumenical, uh, come from behind, uh, public servant and then you know today you, you know well because it's it's my it's my weird and not necessarily very successful we'll see I, I got a few things that i hope to get out there before i'm done but uh it's my it's my strange form of public service honestly and it's that sounds ridiculous i know but you know when i was growing up uh First of all, I believe very strongly that art is the final frontier of truth and so forth. And we live in an era of misinformation and news 
diversity, let's put it that way. Uh, and people not exactly knowing what they can trust, you know, and who's right, who's wrong, but they can trust their feelings, essentially. And whether it's music or film or television or storytelling in general, uh, I've always viewed that as actually the way in which society changes. Uh, I have the ocean, not the vessel, the culture, not the machinery of politics. That changes exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have no comment on Bill Cosby's accusations. I don't know anything other than what I've read, which is all confusing and sounds horrible and sure. probably bad. But there would be no Barack Obama without Bill Cosby. Yeah, I think that's fair. Very fair. Wouldn't have happened. Bill Cosby, that Cosby show showed a different world. All sorts all of America shows, right? that guess what? African Americans are the same as you. And go through the same ups and downs and and you know did not uh I mean that that was the end of the so-called, you know, blackface kind of minstrel yeah. era where you know, Sammy Davis. Yeah, think Jr. about that. He produced a TV show that was about uh, people of color getting a higher education degree at an HBCU. Yeah. I mean, he was a kind lawyer of and a doctor, right? A lawyer and a doctor. Yeah. No, and like a legit family. So that's so that's but, how you, you know. But so and and the same with like Will and Grace. Well said. I mean, do you think? gay marriage, all of the positive pro-gay rights movement would have happened had not Will and Grace been the biggest show in the world for five, six years. They put it on hyperspeed, right? They, I mean, they, yeah. They and everybody it. says, like, I don't understand how America shifted from uh, completely, I mean, Obama came out anti-gay marriage for a minute when Biden was actually sure. in the right spot. And Biden had to kind of like cajole him over to, you know, uh, remind him of rights. And uh, by the way, God bless Joe Biden, man. I'm, I'm rooting for this guy more than you can believe. But uh, anyway, I digress. I hope I'm speaking to mostly Reach. Democrats. But, uh, I love you Republicans too. You know? I got many Republicans. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, uh, you know, the change in american society in my opinion and there's plenty of data to support this really happened because of a show like will and grace or other shows and so forth where that made people comfortable with the idea that oh a gay person is not like some sort of alien you know that right. must be i'm thinking the chronic with uh with cannabis you know dr yeah. dre and snoop dogg i mean you're sure. hip-hop culture has made marijuana seem uh like normal a normal form of self-medication i'll put it that way that's right everybody self-medicates uh successful people self-medicate successfully <laughs> but, uh, steal that one. <laughs> and that includes shopping and gambling everything else but uh anyway but yeah but tim you know so the brand i mean this is the most long-winded answer ever are we running out of audience time here all right but the brand was essentially, he was different. So like in the primary, all of the, he refused to take, you know, when we were running for primary, 
we literally sat him down with consultants and fundraisers, et cetera. And we were just like, yo, you cannot be wishy-washy on choice. You can't. You can't win a Democratic primary where you're kind of wishy-washy on choice. And now he wasn't wishy-washy. He was completely pro-choice when it came to government, his obligations to the country, what he is running for, et cetera. Because again, his separation was like church and state. Uh, but he was wishy-washy when it came to the fact that he would admit that like personally, he did not believe in abortion based on his Catholic views. And he also didn't believe in a death, death penalty. You know, and we, we would sit there trying to be like, yo, bro, you cannot win like this. You cannot win. But he refused to budge from his belief system, which in retrospect is remarkably honorable, even though I'm not Catholic and I don't share those beliefs. Uh, but at least it makes sense. Number one, he was always going to execute the laws of the state. He had no interest in pressing his own views on this stuff. And he does believe in choice when it comes to, you know, rape and incest and that kind of stuff. I mean, all the bad stuff. I mean, of course, but like, you know, he, 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 he's Catholic, you know, he, he was a missionary in Honduras. He, he, you know, that's his, uh, spiritual backbone. And the way he interprets it, in my opinion, even as a left Democrat is remarkably, uh admirable because not only does he apply to the death penalty as well but he also realizes church and state and you know he's anti-death penalty but as governor he had to we have to thank virginia for the the old church and state construct too talk yeah. to me though about that inform i mean it's it's obviously informed so much of your your life your path, your trail, your career. Talk to talk to like some of our younger folks about how talk to all of us about how this transition from sort of politics, it's all writing, it's all producing in a sense, right? But talk about that transition to to entertainment. Cause I think a lot of people would love to know how to find that bridge. Um how did you hmm. find it? Well, uh, probably not in a way that's going to be super he helpful because it feels like I just kind of got lucky. I don't know. Uh, I shouldn't say that, right? I should promote myself. But uh, no, no. I'll take your I, uh, I had no connections really to Hollywood. and But I wanted to tell stories because the most important moments in my personal development in terms of understanding justice and uh equality and the importance of what we basically fight for as democrats is based on my consumption of literature and films and movies and television series uh, and I just knew that that like amongst all the information we're all given every day, that was the, that was the stuff that sunk into me, you know? And so I wanted to do it, but I had no connections. So I, I went out there on a wing and a prayer 
And I had a few young Yale friends that were working as an assistant to some agent over here or this or that, you know. And I had written a screenplay called Laredo, which was my first uh, screenplay. It's a teleplay, I guess, officially. But uh, it was a 65-page pilot plus a Bible for a series about the border Laredo, Texas, Nuevo Laredo. And uh, this is 2009. So just as the uh, sort of war on cartels was beginning, and I had pretty intimate knowledge of all of that because that's where my family's all from and uh, so forth. And so uh, I wrote this in Aspen in my underwear, pretty much. I was running a bookstore in Basalt. Right. And... Uh, and then a noble gig yeah that's the best job i ever had man running a bookstore that was fun it's like wait you have work to do figure out some great books that you need to order <laughs> recommend mm, right oh my gosh what a horrible job right uh... <laughs> and so then uh and then like i you know i could schedule the whole crew for the day and then go skiing you know so yeah <laughs> really but laredo was a success right out of the gate but laredo hit yeah so anyway so i I sent it to my few connections here and there. And then I got phone calls a few days later and, you know, the head of UTA, Jeremy Zimmer, who's still the CEO and uh, who I've known for gosh, 30 years. Uh, he called me and said, uh, this is good. We want you to come in tomorrow and talk. And uh, CAA called me, Joe Cohen, who's now the head of, uh, TV and uh, one of the big leaders at CAA and uh, he called me and sort of said the same thing and I started talking to various agents and uh, ended up signing with Joe Cohen and CAA and uh, was very happy about that. Joe's one of the best dudes in Hollywood. He's a Tim Kaine kind of figure in Hollywood, which is, it sounds impossible, right? I mean, you know, it's Hollywood. Uh, so he definitely has some muscles and he knows how to brush people off, but uh, nonetheless, he's actually a good dude. He's a really good dude. And he's a family man and he cares about the right things. And he's a reader, which is one of the craziest thing about, things about Hollywood is that there are very few actual readers. I believe that. I believe and that. Uh, so, it's ironic because this whole business is employed by scripts and, uh, and yet not that many people read. So anyway, to, so Joe, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say to go deeper on that, just for me sort of witnessing you and how you pull these ideas together, you know, in politics, they always say, you know, research wins elections, you know, research can be outcome determinative you know, and what I recognize from from your writing experience is how deeply you focus on the research. And and I, I wondered if you might be able to talk a little bit about what that even means. I mean, to me, it seems like you're like you're like living in this experience that you may or may or may not write about. That it's it, there's a it's it's more than journalistic. It's uh Anyway, how about you talk about it? Gonzo, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, a little Gonzo, right? A little Gonzo. Well, here's my, I guess, my point of view. First of all, 
life is fucking fascinating. This world, the way we organize ourselves, the issues of the day, the unfortunate wars and fights, uh, the rapid progress, the acceleration of time, the essentially species evolution that we're all experiencing right now. Uh, I'm completely fascinated by it. And I do feel like I have perhaps a more diverse set of thoughts about it, given my background, than the average person. But that's not to say that I really know what the fuck I'm saying. Therefore, a long time ago, I realized I, I, I was not going to write anything I didn't, hadn't experienced, didn't really know or see. And that's not to say it's purely journalistic, where it's like, I saw this here, I saw that there. But that if I'm really going to write about, you know, the Sinaloa cartel in 2009, I'm going to walk into the cartel stupidly and irresponsibly, but with... Frighteningly. <laughs> well, with an appropriate shepherd, you know, which is the term in the journalistic game, but, you know, with somebody who could bring me in safely and with their understanding that I'm not cops, I'm not, I'm not here to bust anybody or anything else. I'm here to try my best to capture a photograph, a story about this moment in time. And uh, so there is kind of a journalistic element to it and that ties back into my political bent which is again simply what the fuck people don't you realize what's going on you know like like here's here's actually here's the actual world wake happening. up wake up and you know and perhaps that's arrogant uh i'm sure it is but uh nonetheless i really feel and i, I you know damien you're a little older than me i'm happy to admit sure all right but uh, the point is, our generation is this bizarre generation. If you think about it in terms of historical time periods. And, you know, we're not the baby boomers. That's a very legitimate generation. Like, come out of the war, baby boom, America supreme, reap the benefits, build the world, et cetera, right? And then you've got kind of 60s and 70s and sexual cultural revolution and civil rights and everything else. And then you got this weird period we're in, which is this whatever through the 80s. I don't even know what we're called. Are we X or Y or Z or G? I think we're called, uh, actually, what? Xennials. Apparently, we're called Xennials. And so then. And then you have the, you know, basically post-technology generations and which I think that's a real generational shift. I mean, I raised a daughter who's 10 years old and who we just got her, her, her first sort of starter limited, no social media phone, but nonetheless, you know, here we go. And so, uh, I think our job in many ways is to kind of tell the story of this transition between generations 
because we're a bridge generation in many ways. And as exemplified by the fact that we can't even get one of our own elected president. I mean, we got 80 year olds Good running comment. against each other. We got baby boomers and it's going to jump to millennials. Right. I mean, that's literally yeah. what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, gonna that's happen. right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's uh, we are such a strange generation because we grew up half our lives without a phone and half our lives with a phone. And we're not too old to not understand what's going on, but we're too old to have grown up with it. And, you know, and it's a very unique generation. That's a bridge kind of generation between these various futures that seem to be laid out before us. So that's a big reason why I write and a big reason why I try to tell the stories I try to tell, because I'm trying to capture this moment in time, because I feel very strongly that if you or Bill there, the great producer or anybody, uh, was available to be interviewed by CNN in 1000 years about this moment in time, they would be very excited because this is a big time moment in time. It really is. And it, and it plays out, sorry to ramble here, Damon, but it plays out in all these different ways. It plays out in terms of politics. I mean, uh, you know, MAGA and Trump and everything else. And this longing for a past that will never return is representative of the time shift you know the sort of moment we are in time yeah like yeah shit's changing people deal with it yeah you know you can't just go back to an imaginary world uh if you look at uh the uh you know just the way in which people are changing in terms of just the phone you know, I'm not d- divulging my love life, but I'll say this. I've had a few girlfriends over the years who like cuddle their phone. Now, that could just be representative of their fear of me or something like I'm some. <laughs> they had to keep the phone nearby Stop. in case Stop. emergency happened. <laughs> but I actually think it was actually more just the emotional connectivity people have to these devices, because through that phone, the world uh, is at your fingertips. And, uh, you know, there was a study not too long ago, Stanford study about this, and uh, they brought a group of seniors into class one day at a high school, and they uh, said, today you have the day off, you can do whatever you want, you can uh, play with your friends, you can have fun, uh, no rules, no school, enjoy, lunch will be served, uh, whatever. But you have to put your phones in the bucket when you walk in. And uh, the study, which I'd have to find a reference, but it's a real study. Basically, they went through all the stages of grief. Wow. Over their phones, you know? Yeah. So we live in this different age. So I'm just trying to capture a little bit of that. Anyway, <laughs> before, before I let you go, pick up uh, your brilliant uh, daughter, who is uh, we're all going to see on the, the big screen or the little screen, depending on where the uh, technology takes us one day or in our ear uh, pods. But um, talk to me about where entertainment is going um, and, and do you see any linkages with politics that that people should be 
sort of aware of, um, you know, are we going to see a more creative sort of political cycle? Or are we going to see a, a merging of entertainment and politics? Like we've seen so much celebrity inter in inundate politics. It's always been sort of a factor, seems more than ever. Um, any any observations about the potential intersections or collisions between this political world that you came up in and the, this entertainment world that you've mastered? Uh, yes, a few observations. Uh, the, you know, continuing merging of politics and entertainment will continue. There's just no way around that. Uh, show business, I mean, politics has become in many ways show business because that's the way in which you reach people. And, you know, you can have a 200-person town hall over here or you can have a CNN appearance over here and obviously one is much more powerful than the other. And then once you're on CNN, it does become a show business game, particularly because of these pundits and so forth who kind of referee uh, the scenario. Uh, now, as an idealist, I would vote for campaign finance reform and and political reform in the sense that I think there should just be sort of blank space allowed for the candidates to present themselves. And we don't need all the sort of talking heads. Yeah, um, like almost the English model where they, they, they have sort of a run at it with, in a creative right. storytelling sense, right? Right. And just like save your punditry for whatever. But uh, we don't live in that kind of world. And so the moment you introduce pundits and so forth and people that are trying to get themselves famous by reacting to some, somebody else's, you know, uh, speech or what have you, you're getting into a space. Yeah, I mean, it's just show business. It's show business. And so, you know, unfortunately, we are biologically, Darwinistically uh, explained, you know, evolving uh, genetic beings. And we still like symmetrical people, so pretty people are going to do better, whatever that means. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying, you know, there's a reason why uh, there are a lot of pretty people on TV. And, uh, and that'll filter into politics as well. I mean, I think, honestly, could FDR win a nomination this day and age? I don't know. Uh, but right. could uh, a governor? Could even a governor? Right. Any governor? Right. But like, why hasn't Rick Abbott run for president? Right. You think he'd have the best story of them all, in a sense. I mean, how long has he been in Texas now? Like, is it second term or third term? It's been a while. He's the governor of Texas. And we don't hear his name. And now he's an idiot. He's a stone cold idiot. But not that much in the sense that he's actually managed to survive his own political, you know, yeah, narrative say, here. like party Frank says compared to what, right? <laughs> right. Compared to what? Exactly. I mean, I, when I say idiot, I just mean, I disagree with all of his intellectual positionings and theories. And uh, I think he's basically That's a horrible a savvy, person. Savvy clarification. Uh, but in terms of his knowledge of how to like operate, as a governor, I mean, this guy's now in Texas. That's the biggest macho state there is. Why is that guy not running for president? 
I don't have the answer. Except I actually think, I, you know, it's, it's, it's wild to me. I don't know, but you know, maybe some of it has to do with this idea that like to be a president in this modern era, more and more, you're going to have to have that movie star kind of capacity, you know, mm -hmm. and be seen throwing out the first pitch at the Yankees game and all that sort of stuff. And this is no disrespect to his ailments what have you i think i think this is a horrific development if it's true in terms of american political science by the way there's no such thing uh <laughs> but uh but anyway yeah i think let me get back to your fundamental question so where's show business going and how does that relate to politics yeah so show business is going exactly in the following direction which is consolidation uh, we have been through a period of, of gross expansion as all these various streamers and so forth have tried to uh, basically gain audiences. And in so doing, they were allowed to overspend uh, revenues and profit were not, you know, the absolute priority. It was more subscribers win the market share and then and then we'll figure out profit after you do something like that. And uh, so uh that has ended and uh basically we're left with three four standing giants that will control most of the future uh you've got netflix you know they continue to grow and they have complete dominance when it comes to uh the streaming space uh you have amazon and Amazon Prime, which ha they have not really taken a secure foothold in the zeitgeist and the minds of Americans quite yet as kind of a network type of destination, NBC, but they're working on it hard with football, with all sorts of other things. They want to be a network and, uh, and they have all the money in the world. So they have the capacity to do that. And then you've got uh, YouTube, Google, uh, etc which uh you know they are continuing to try to figure out how to uh essentially avoid antitrust laws in building out their platform because google would have bought universal or warner brothers or many of these companies a long time ago if it weren't for antitrust laws uh and so they're trying to figure out how to become a network and a public square having built a business plan on being kind of a public public square. Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, the Disney, some of the old type of corporations, you know, primarily Disney. But these, the, you know, they, they'll buy up everything. Uh, I mean, Disney bought Fox, right? So, uh, and this will consolidate into another four, five, six kind of giant companies that essentially try to control most of content, but that won't actually be the true story. The true story will be the ability for individuals to make their own content and present their own content, just as, like you're doing right now, Damien. Or just like you uh, did with Laredo. Yeah, but just like, you know, the, the content wins. But they'll be able to distribute it. And, and it's Michael Eisner, you know, who was a friend of mine from way back when, randomly. That's another story, but it's one of the most hilarious. He saw me at a book event talking about books and somehow I became friends with Michael Eisner, but he always said, content is king. Content yeah, is right. king. And, uh, you know, it's true. 
content is king, uh, what people choose to put into their minds, essentially, is how we move as a society and as a people. And now we have this insanely diverse and worldwide ability to learn everything and see whatever we, we want. And, you know, there's the water cooler is going to become, you know, a coffee cup. And uh, everybody's going to be able to just, you know, take choose their own lanes. And uh, I talk, you know, I've done a bunch of work with AI because I was as part of the Writers Guild Union and so forth. Uh, that was a big issue on our plate over the last year. And, you know, the thing that people don't quite understand about AI is that uh, it is the algorithm is designed to please, to understand and to please the individual client that they are serving at that moment. And to essentially sort of become a highly educated yes man in that regard. Now, AI will not like you if you start off your relationship with AI by saying, fuck you, I hate you. It's it's programmed to not like people like that. If you're actually like, hello, greetings, I'm going to be nice to you, it'll treat you differently. And then as you rise wow. up, yeah, no, truly, truly. And as you rise up within it, it ultimately wants to figure out a way to sort of have you locked down. And so I asked AI a number of times, won't this just continue to break the fabric of society? Won't this just continue to create this web of misinformation where everybody believes a different set of facts and so forth and so on? And it said, yes. yes. You know, so we're living at a crazy time. So good luck, all you youngsters out there and Willa and uh, <laughs> Wesley and everybody else. But uh We'll just be here to like mark the uh, mark the end of <laughs> whatever <laughs> X species. Uh, yes, we're going to become yeah. the Matrix, and uh, Elon is going to soon plug things into our heads. Well, we'll be following you through the journey. Thank Eric, you, man. I hope this was yeah. a fun conversation. I know I talked a lot, but hey, absolutely, totally revealing, and uh, I want to thank you again. He's the writer. Let He's me ask you a question, oh, Damian. Uh oh. Uh -oh. All right. How did your passion for politics and especially lefty Odarni, like how did your passion for the left and progressive philosophies, politics, policies, how did that begin? Where did that where does that come from? Because you're an uh, old white guy living in Aspen, Colorado, you know, like you're not exactly the demo. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, and I think in college, you know, everything I was sort of I was in in high school. But did you college, grow up with like a Republican household or a Democrat? Uh, I grew up with like the village voice being delivered to my house. And I reacted against that as a high schooler and a colle collegian. I was uh, I was, you know, a Republican. And then I was going to law school at the University of Baltimore and reading all these cases by Scalia. You know, and, and many times they were dissents, obviously, but I was just like, you know, his world is so black and white and disconnected from the world that I see in West Baltimore, that I see in East Baltimore, 
Uh, and I, it, I just had a lot of trouble with that. And so I've, I've always had sort of, um, a bit of a civil rights or a fairness thing, uh, in my, in my, just so for everybody, like people being treated fairly. And I, I always felt like, um, I, I just, the more I interacted in Maryland and Baltimore, my, my, my home state after college, I just, uh, kind of reconnected with those ideals and, you know, I was also told at the time, uh, like, you'll never make it as a Republican in this state. I always joke if I if I would have <laughs> uh, if I would have uh, kept on going, I'm, you know, we've had several Republican governors since then. So, you know, but so there's uh, some work, self-interest involved. For sure, self-interest involved. I'm, I'm sure, and, but, you but, but, you know, I but you for, did change from Republican to I Dem. Did. And now I you're like for lefty. 10 black city Senate, 10 black senators. Wow. Um, I worked for you know, in the state Senate of Maryland representing. But what I see in you is a real passion for justice. And I see within you, even to the point. I think I was, uh, I think when I was a kid, I was like blamed for stuff that didn't happen. (laughs) And it stuck with me for the rest of my life. You know, I just, I really do. do, I really do feel like that. That'll do it. That'll do it. I won't bore you with the story. But you also have, no, you can tell stories, man. But you also have this open-mindedness and love for people non-judgmental i would say which i think is kind of a core philosophy of the left in a it's sense that openness right? we accept each other despite our differences whereas in my opinion the other side trends towards conformity and assimilation and they think they have all the answers as opposed to maybe saying, we'll never, we're never going to have all the answers. We just got to help each other out. Dude, they make all their own people wear red fucking hats that say MAGA. <laughs> like never in a million years would the left even have the, like the brilliance to do this. Like we could right. not do this. Right. We're not going to wear the same hats, people. <laughs> but well, anyway. Thank you for the question. Yeah, but you're a great man. And I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on here. And... Uh, wish you guys all the luck in the world and uh keep listening to damien and yeah check out wesley when she's famous that'd be great all right okay that's fair honored to have you on eric thank you so much he's eric Lodo. people can find him on twitter right people can find him like, i guess back in i'm mainly uh, on instagram i don't like twitter anymore elon bugs me but so if you want to like actually <laughs> stay in touch go on instagram at eric Lodo. e-r-i-c-l-o-d-a-l thanks to my man great talk to all you. right man